Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. So we have a, we have a, a guest today with us, Rich Perez. Rich, come on up. So you guys know, welcome Rich. So uh, Rich is a pastor at uh, Cruz Cri- Christ Crucified Fellowship in Washington Heights, New York. He's a partner of ours. Um, if, you, if you're familiar, familiar with the island of Manhattan, and you, I just I may sound like a no, fool here. Fine, you help me if I, if I mess this up. It's long and, and narrow, and they're at the very top, kind of on the left. Is yeah. that correct? Yep, that's right. Oh, crushed it. All right. So that's Washington Heights. Uh, in an area of the area of the city that um, is very diverse, also very social. Populated. Very, very populated, yeah. uh, and, and an area that is in turmoil, too. It just kind of people moving in and out and, and some, some change happening there. So he leads, a, he leads a congregation there. He wrote a book. We have a book, his book out for sale. The name of your book is Mi Casa Uptown. Did I say that with the right accent? And, and right, right, not accent, you know what I'm saying. We're on stage. Yes, okay. Because <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I work on these things, um, and, I, and I try to, to, to sound... Like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, loved it. I read it. Loved the book. We actually dialogued with him on Friday night. If you came to our For the City forum on this book and some of the ideas there, uh, it was kind of way of introduction to you. Give us give us a little background on where your book came from, and then kind of the main message of that book. Yeah. So uh, it's a memoir. So it's it's uh, in large part just my story growing up in the neighborhood, uh, but I think it's really a push for uh, developing a theology of place. How important is place to your spiritual formation? Uh, And I think as an inner city kid, the narrative that's often told to us is in order to be successful, in order to be faithful, you've got to leave this place. Um, And uh, my hope was in writing the book was to help flip that narrative on on its head and say, well, I think you could be successful and faithful even if you stay and contribute to the narrative that's there. So... Um, how significant uh, is place? What role does it play in your development, especially your spiritual formation? So, Great. Very good. So we had a dialogue on Friday night. We recorded that. We're going to try to get some of the video clips up in the next week on our, on our Facebook page and, and our website. Um, and then Rich is going to speak to us this morning, kind of, kind of continuing this conversation. Had a great week, weekend with him. You got, to, you got to play some ball yesterday, some basketball. I did. I was, was so it, glad I Was did. it similar to the street ball culture you're, from, you're familiar with? It wasn't, but it was great. Okay, all right. It was still, it was still great, though. Okay, it was, it was still, still fantastic. Good. All right, sweet. Now, before I pray for you and let you go, here's what you got to know. I, so I went to your church like a month ago, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was pumped, and I came back, like, telling them how awesome people, like, you know, cheer in the middle and talk, and here's what you got to know, man. They ain't gonna, they're not going to do it. <laughs> and, and it's not that they hate you. Um, it's we're just scared. We're scared to make noise. So, uh, if Don't you can, afraid. if you can get it out of them, I would, I'll, I'll hug you afterwards. Cause I'm hoping it'll <laughs> last, but it's going to be, it's going to be different. Now we're excited to have you here. We're yeah. excited that you could come and share your heart with us. Uh, preach boldly, say what you got to say, say what the Lord has laid on your heart. Preach with freedom this morning. Let me pray for you. Thank you, man. God, I thank you for our brother, Rich. Thank you for his church. I pray for them this morning as they are, as they are worshiping uh, and he's not with them. I pray now this morning, Father, that you would give him clarity, that you give him boldness, that, uh, that he would have um, a peace and a humility that comes from you and that he would uh, challenge us and to, to orient our lives around this Jesus that we are following. 
So I pray for him. Pray that our hearts are open to what you have to say through our brother. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I'm going to go ahead and slide this over here. How y'all doing? Good. Um, well, I am excited to be here with you guys today. Um, it's been great spending uh, some good time in your city. Uh, I've been blessed by your pastors. Uh, they're incredible hosts, uh, but also incredible families. Uh, but I am excited to be here primarily uh, because I get an opportunity to share with you God's word. Uh, I don't ever take it lightly uh, when I can open God's word and, and share it. Uh, with his people, so I pray that he would meet us here today. Hey, I'm going to, if I can, join uh, Pastor Daniel in that prayer and just uh, pray for us together here. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much uh, for being so kind and gracious and merciful and loving. Uh, God, I pray that we would experience you today in a far deeper way than we have before we stepped into this room. Uh, God, some of us may have come in here uh, thinking a thousand different things, uh, clouded, uh, blinded, discouraged. Some of us may even have come in here excited and filled with joy. God, would you meet us nonetheless uh, in a way that's unique, in a way that's special. God, that we would gain clarity on who your son Christ is uh, more than we had when we first stepped in here. Uh, Jesus, help me to be good at one thing and one thing alone, that is uh, to get out of the way and for people to see Jesus. Uh, speak through me, God. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, uh, a few years ago, I had a conversation with my son, and for a moment, I want to invite you guys to step into that conversation, uh, that he and I had a few years ago, so just watch this video with me. Did you have fun today? No, you know what? I had a great I had fun. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. So, me and Jake, so this is really weird, me and Jacob... Have this thing, so when when he gets hurt, I feel like a little pain in my brain, and when I'm crying when I get hurt, he feels that too. Really? Yeah, it's really strange. Well, maybe you guys are so connected that you feel each other's pain, huh? That's actually a good thing. Why? Well, because when he's hurt, you're able to understand why he's hurt. And when you're hurt, he's able to understand what it feels like to be hurt. So that's actually a pretty good thing. Did you have fun today? We could hear it again. I could hear my son talk all the time. Uh, that's my son, Josiah. He's nine now. And... Uh, he and I were talking about the pain in his brain, as he describes, uh, that he and his cousin Jacob shared. Uh, I like to do this all the time. I have the tendency of just having my phone on record, because uh, you just never know what your kids are going to say or what people around you are going to say, and what kind of meaningful conversations can happen. So that was all just in the spur of the moment. I just happened to hit record because I felt something was coming. Um, and as I listened to that conversation and as I just meditated on it a little bit, it forced me to ask a few questions, questions that I'll pose to us here today. Do we feel each other's pain as if it were our own? Do we feel each other's pain as if it were our own? 
Do I put myself in positions and environments to deeply feel the pain or the joy of another, despite how different he or she may be from me? It's often in these simple, honest, and imaginative conversations with my son that God uses to show me his desire for the church and what he desires his people to be. But here's the challenge. We're not children anymore, even though we like to think we are. We're not children anymore. Having conversations around empathy isn't as easy when you're an adult because something has happened between childhood and adulthood. It seems that our relationships have become far more complex. Our relationships have become far more complex. We've grown to be far more self-centered and our desires to see someone else flourish is radically waning. Now, one of the things that we value back home at our church is this idea of compelling hospitality. But it's not the kind of hospitality that merely opens its doors to someone. It's the kind of hospitality that offers to their neighbor, whoever they may be, as you heard me share on Friday, for those of you that were there, the very thing that refreshes us, a compelling idea and reality of hospitality is to extend to others the very thing that refreshes us. We offer to our, neighbor, our neighbors the very thing that gives us life, not the things that we're done using. This idea of hospitality is something that we deeply value back home. Hospitality for us is the pursuit of making family out of strangers and friends out of enemies. The idea of hospitality is pursuing the idea of making family out of strangers and friends out of enemies. We value this because we believe that we ourselves were once strangers and enemies, brought near and close. Back home, we've realized that calling each other family uh, is one thing. Feeling like we're family is an entirely different matter. Calling ourselves family is rather easy. We can even theologically place that for ourselves. Feeling like family, however, is very difficult, we've come to realize. Because growing in our relationship with Jesus means strengthening our identity as family. Being family means making room for one another. Our stories, every bit of our story, every part of our story is deeply important. Our hardships and our triumphs, our dreams, our fears, our longings, our pleasures, our displeasures, our history. All of it is important and important for us to make margin for it because being family means making room for meaningful moments, not fleeting moments, moments that stir up joy and a deep sense of togetherness. As some of our folks back home say, it's when your grandmother feels like my grandmother. That's when we've accomplished something significant. When you feel safe with each other because you're certain that you don't ever have to defend or explain your dignity or value or beauty to each other. It's just understood. It's when you're certain that even critique or rebuke or discipline will be used for your good and the glory of God. That's the kind of safety that we're talking about. Have we created a space of that kind of safety? That we're certain we don't ever have to defend or explain why I'm filled with dignity and value and beauty. Or a place where I'm safe to know that even the hard things will be used for my good. 
everyone throughout the course of its history, and certainly back home I've experienced this, everybody always questions the church. People have always been skeptical about her, right? How does she relate to the world around her? How does she relate to the arts? How does she relate to politics? How does she exist in society? Does she just want my money? Does she just care for my soul but not my body? Does she just want to get me into heaven but doesn't care that I'm suffering on earth? Everybody has a lot of questions about the church. And I think it's healthy to ask who is the church? Who will she be? What will she value? What will she do? Luke chapter 15, where we'll spend our time today, I think gives us some really good pictures of who the church ought to be. Christ Crucified Fellowship back in New York City, as much as Hill City Church here in Springfield. Let me read that for us. It's Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. I might kind of like jump around just for the sake of time. I really want to get into uh, uh, preaching. He, Jesus, also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, 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 give me the share of the estate or assets I have coming to me. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat the fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and here I am dying of hunger? I will get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He, was found, he is uh, lost and now is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, his older brother, here we go, was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he, because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving for many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I can go celebrate with my friends. See what this boy really wanted. But when those but when the son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. When we read this text, a few things that I realize God is saying, not only about himself, but as a result of the church. You and I here. First thing that we must learn to see that the church is, is that we must learn to see that the church is a safe place for the hurting. The church ought to be a safe place for the hurting. Now, let's look at the characters in this story for a second. And let's try to dissect what's happening here. The younger son in the story finds himself in a really unique place, doesn't he? He finds himself in a really unique place. He's in a space where his poor decisions and his shame are now dictating the way that he sees himself. In other words, he's realizing that the situation that he's found himself in is dictating his identity. His poor decisions and his shame are now dictating his identity. The story describes him at the lowest point of his life in verse 15. Listen to what it says. When he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, the faraway country, Uh, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat the fill from the pigs' pods, but no one would give him anything. But it gets worse for this brother. Verse 17 notes it. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll go to my father and I'll say, Hey, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Here's what we're realizing about this younger son. Physically, he's realizing that he didn't have anything to eat. But spiritually and emotionally, we're realizing that he didn't have anything to believe. He found himself in a place where he could not fathom being a son again. The circumstance of his life broke, utterly broke his identity. The shame and the guilt and the brokenness of his past convinced him that he could no longer be a son again. The space that this younger brother found himself in closed off any possibility of being restored again as a son. He's like, man, listen, I done made some really poor decision, and in my shame, I'm convinced that my dad could no longer receive me as a son. Let me at least go back as a hired worker. But I love what the father in this story does. Instead of conceding to a space where shame would dictate the identity of his son, the father creates an entirely new space for him to exist in. The father doesn't concede. He creates. The father creates an entirely new space. Now notice what actually happens. So when he comes to his senses, he gets up. And he went to, and, he, and, and so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, what happens? His father saw him, sprinted toward him with compassion, threw his arms around him, kissed him, and celebrated him. This is the space that the father is now creating for this shame-filled son. The father creates a space where his son's past and his poor decisions would not suffocate His identity. Have you ever felt like your past decisions, your poor decisions, the consequences of your decisions, and perhaps even the consequences of others' decisions around you have suffocated your own identity? I may be alone, but I have a feeling that I'm not. 
The Father creates a space where the Son would not drown in his past. Look at how the Father continues to respond to the youngest son. The Father called the servants. He says, Crick, bring out the best robes, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost, now is found. So they began to celebrate. Now this party is far more important than we often attribute it to be. Sometimes we may even gloss over this party. Because Christians shouldn't party. And we should be serious. But this party is far too important to gloss over. Now... Uh, I was born uh, to Dominican immigrants. I mentioned on Friday that my people were lively, a.k.a. loud. And I grew up in a home where everything was celebrated. You know, I learned how to walk, they threw a party. Learned how to open the fridge, they threw a party. Learned how to tie my shoes, there was party, there was food, there was dancing. I'm part of a culture that celebrates every chance that they can. So this party means so much to me. I can deeply appreciate the significance of this party. Why? Because this banquet, this party would be a new space for the younger son to exist in. This banquet, this feast, this party would be a new space where the younger son could exist, where compassion and forgiveness and joy would now be what defines this son, no longer his shame and his poor decisions. You see, the younger son existed in his own space where shame dictated his identity, and the father says, nuh I'm going to create an entirely new space where compassion, forgiveness, and joy would now define your identity. This party with his dad's presence as a symbol of his dad's forgiveness, is the son's true place of safety, refuge, and identity now. Then you've got the older brother. Then you've got the older brother in this story who's repulsed by the whole thing, perhaps for two reasons. One, he's finally realizing that his dad's blessing isn't attached or built around some kind of merit system. He's upset that he isn't able to earn what he truly wants. You read earlier in the story what he really wanted not, wasn't just time with his dad, was food with him and his friends. So he's frustrated probably because he can't earn his dad's blessing. And he's worked hard to get it. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, I think this brother's upset and devastated because he sees that his pops expects him to be in the space that he created for his younger son. Pops go ahead and he creates this really cool space for his younger son to be forgiven and experience compassion and be celebrated. And he expects the older brother to be into that, to come into that space. So here is now this older brother saying to himself, I can't possibly imagine existing in that space. So of course I'm frustrated. He couldn't understand the thought of a space where his brother's return would be celebrated, where his rebellion would be forgiven, and where his debt would be canceled. Go figure. This older brother could not fathom a space where his brother's return would be celebrated, his rebellion forgiven, and his debt canceled. I mean, he had no categories for this in his mind. And we love categories because we love control. 
If I can place something in a category, I can control it to one degree or another. But if I ever come across something that exists outside of my categories, then I either cast it off to the margins or demonize it. And so this brother is now looking at his younger son, and because he fits in none of his categories, and then is looking at his pops like, how could you? Then he starts to marginalize and demonize his brother, and perhaps even his father. How could you expect me to be in this space? So it's no surprise to me that later in the story we read the older brother, or rather we read the story saying this. Then he, the older brother, became angry and did what? Did not want to go in. It's no surprise to me that he didn't want to go in because it is a space that exists outside of his categories. Rebellion being forgiven. Return being celebrated. Debt being canceled. I have no no room for that in the way that I exist. So I will not go in. But do you see what happens next in the story? The father creates the same space for the older brother as he did for the younger brother. Listen to what it says. After we realize that the older brother became angry and did not want to go in, the text says, so his father came out and pleaded with him. Over the years, I've had to really let that truth settle in. Over the years of being familiar with this story, over the years of reading this story, I've had to really let that detail settle. Because if I have missed that detail, if we miss that detail, we miss the heartbeat of who God is and who he desires us to be. Now just think about that for a moment. God creates a space for his younger son. The father creates a space for the younger son. And then he goes and he creates a space for the older son. And both of them communicate the father's pursuit of both. The temptation is to grow angry with God because he hasn't given you what you wanted and what you think you deserved and what you've asked for. And because you believe you deserve it, now your back is toward God. Or rather, the temptation is to allow our shame and discouragement to write off the idea that God cannot restore us as a daughter or a son so you don't come close to God because you're filled with too much shame and discouragement. This story tells us different. The father doesn't wait for the sons to come to him, but rather he takes the initiative to go to both of them. The father doesn't wait to go to either son. He goes to both of them. He runs to one and meets the other one outside. We read earlier how the father ran to the younger son. He threw his arms around him and adorned him from head head to toe and celebrated him like the royal son that uh, that he was before. Now check this out. The father did all of that before the son could utter one word of repentance. Do you notice that? The father ran to his younger son, threw his arms around his neck, dressed him and adorned him from head to toe, celebrated him before the son could utter one word of repentance. I mean, this this dude was rehearsing his lines on his way to his pops, and his pops didn't even give him the room to say it before he could celebrate him. Did you notice that detail? 
I hope you did. And now we're reading how despite the bitterness and the hardness of this older brother and his resistance to coming into the space that the father created for his younger brother, the father goes and he shows gentle love toward his older brother by coming out. Now, he'll study the, the beauty of the message of the church The reason why the message of the church is good is because it says that God's kiss and his embrace, which are both signs of love and acceptance and invitation, is not the response of our repentance, but rather it is the action that inspires our repentance, our willingness to change. I'll say that again. The message of the church is good because it says that God's kiss and embrace, hear me, that God's kiss and embrace, which are both signs of love and invitation, is not the response of your repentance, but rather it is the action that inspires our repentance, our willingness to change. You see, we can be very religious and say that the reason that God is good to us is because we're good at repenting. I'm good at being at church. I'm good at reading my Bible. I'm good at acknowledging my sin when it comes. All very good things. So please don't stop doing that. But it is not what forces God to show his love to you. It is not what forces God to invite you into his space. God loves you and invites you because God is loving and inviting not because you coerced him with your repentance. His love, his invitation is what inspires us to repent. The question for us might be, how have we been an extension of this powerful and redemptive love? Offering forgiveness in some cases can seem ridiculous, and I'm pretty sure we can think of several instances where we're like, I just can't forgive this person. It's far too uh, deep of a hurt. Making past failings and deficiencies count for nothing. Rendering those who failed equal to those who have achieved. Hear me. Making past failings and deficiencies count for nothing. Rendering those who have failed equal to those who have achieved. Giving the undeserving equal shares with those who have merited their solid places in society. All of this usually provokes outrage. How could we possibly give to those who've done nothing the same things to those who have done something? It usually provokes outrage. This line of thinking, this way of thinking, this way of living usually provokes outrage. To claim that God is a God of joy, amnesty, and forgiveness, all of this is so outrageous enough to get someone crucified. And it did. We are part of a society that does not often look positively on total amnesty or grace or cancellation of debt. This is why following the way of Jesus in the backdrop of our world and in the backdrop of our hearts is usually revolutionary. That may be a scary word, but certainly within the fabric of God and following him. Following Jesus is revolutionary. 
How is the Father able to offer this kind of grace and generosity and amnesty? It seems whimsical. seems flippant. But I think verse 12 offers us a small bit of clarity to how God can so freely give us uh, this love and this grace and this amnesty. The word assets in verse 12 is not the typical word used to describe stuff that you own, right, as we understand it. Instead, that word in the Greek is the word bios. For any of my college students or for any of my adults out of college that remember this, when you took a biology class, you knew that the word bio was the study of life because bios means life. An interesting word that the author uses to use here to describe stuff that you own. When the younger son is asking the father to give him his bios, he's not asking him, or at least this is not what the author intended, hey, give me the stuff that you own that is rightfully now mine. This younger son is asking something far more important. He's saying, give me your life. Because in some ways, the things that we own have become our lives. If we lose our house, in some ways we'll say, man, we've lost something really significant. But the idea here is that this younger son is asking, hey, I'm asking for what's coming to me. Give me your life. And if you knew anything about culture at that time, to give away your asset only meant that the father had died. You couldn't receive your inheritance until your father had died. So to ask for this and to ask for the assets and to ask for the inheritance was essentially to say, God, was essentially to say, Father, I wish that you would die so that I would get what's coming to me. And you know what? The father did. He gave his life. He chose to die so that the son would be able to enjoy what was coming to him. This younger son asked for something that was going to tear his father's life apart. He divided not just his property. He tore his life up for his sons. In short, this request ripped the family apart. He gives his life. This is why we read in Mark chapter 4, Jesus saying, For even the son came not to be served but to serve and to give his bios as a ransom. Same word used. Church ought to be a safe place for the hurting. But also church ought to be a risky place for power. Church ought to be a risky place for power. Now think about this for a moment. This older brother has, up to this point, created uh, for himself a world. A world where he had the power, where he had the control to manipulate his father's hand and blessing, or at least so he thought. Listen to what he says. Look, I've been slaving many years for you, Dad, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. So here is this world that he's created for himself that has led him to believe that he has control over his dad. I've slaved for you. What's up? Where my goat at? In his mind, his years of obedience and close proximity to his pops were not out of genuine affection for his dad. Rather, they were a, a way to exercise power over his dad when the time was right. 
Let me stay close enough to my dad, not because I love him and want to be close. Let me stay close enough to my dad so that when the time is right, I can lord it over him. The older brother wasn't obedient because he valued intimacy. He was obedient because he valued power and performance. The irony is that the elder son seems to have been as distant from his father in spirit as his younger brother was in body. See, both sons were far from their father, despite the fact that the older son was close in proximity. How many of us have led lives where we run the risk of being close to God, but not for intimacy that we crave with him, but rather for the opportunity to have power over God? How many of us have looked at God and said to him, man, I've done this, I've done that, I've prayed this, I've read that, and yet you've chosen not to give me this? Almost as if to hold God hostage with our obedience. The older brother complains about his years of slaving for his dad only as a chance to treat his dad as a slave. The irony. He says, yo, I've been slaving. And he holds that against him only as a way to keep his dad his slave. The father is now held hostage to his obedience, at least so he thinks. Yet the father in this story dismantles that way of thinking. This father is cool. He's like Jack from This Is Us, like just so cool, like a really cool dude, poised. I love that dude. (laughs) Listen to what he says. Like this this younger son, like you could just imagine. Listen, I I, I always encourage our church, read, read the Bible with imagination These aren't just characters in a story. These are real people that lived in real time, in real culture. I can just imagine this older son just getting at his dad. Man, I've been slaving for 12, I've been slaving for so many years, and you wouldn't even give me a goat to go chill with my peoples. And the father just looks at him, he says, it's a son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours, almost as if to say, listen, your power and your performance mean nothing in this conversation. You could never earn for yourself what I freely give you. Your power, your performance, whatever privilege and entitlement you think you have, it means nothing in this conversation. Son, I'm always, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. You could never earn for yourself what I freely give to you. Your power, your privilege, your performance, your entitlement, it means nothing in this conversation. But you see, y'all, this was a very unwilling big brother. This was a matter of control for him. This was a matter of comfort. And we can relate to that, right? Right? We can relate to power. We can relate to comfort. We can relate to privilege. We can relate to entitlement. Yes and amen. Amen. But he's unwilling. It almost reminds me of Jonah in some ways, who saw God's compassion as weakness and decided for himself what was right. But, you know, this brother's anger in some degree is understandable. Let me tell you why. His anger is understandable. Now, check this out. The story says that the father divided all the inheritance between both sons. The younger son just took his assets with him when he left. 
The younger son took his portion and then he wasted it. He then returns and then his father adorns him from head to toe, puts a ring on his finger, celebrates him, puts a robe back on his back. Where could the father have gotten all of those things? Remember, text says, father distributed the assets between both his sons. The younger son took his portion with him, squandered it, came back, and then somehow, out of nowhere, God, uh, the father finds more robes, more sandals, and more things to adorn him with. Where could he have possibly gotten that from? Ah, that's right. The older brother's portion. So I could understand why big brother's upset. Younger brother came in and took from his portion. You see, the way the older brother thought about this, the way the older brother thought about power and performance convinced him that he was entitled to his portion of the inheritance, as was the younger brother. He thinks to himself, well, my brother squandered his portion, and now he has to suffer the consequences of his foolish living. And if you, dad, want to be generous and merciful and forgiving, even though I disagree with you, you can do whatever you want, but don't do it at my expense, is what he thinks to himself. You see, this big brother was not willing to share his inheritance with his younger brother. He's not willing to suffer the loss of what he thought his power and performance had earned him. His whole world is now being turned upside down, and his only reaction is outrage. But this isn't the only way that we uh, respond to this. This isn't the only way that power, uh, this isn't the only way to respond when power and privilege are challenged. Consider the young rich ruler, who when his wealth and power were, were at risk, he became what? Very sad. Or consider John the Baptist, who in the mix of countryside Judeans and city folks from Jerusalem, he makes a really powerful statement. He says, uh, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandal. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You see, power is challenged, and our response could be in any which way. The question that we ought to ask ourselves is how has our power become self-serving? How has our privilege become self-centered? How have our privileges made us blind to God's love, mercy, and compassion? You see, while this older brother failed to reimagine power and refused to share his inheritance, the story of God gives us a sweet reminder of another big brother. You see, Jesus is the older brother who uses his power and what truly and exclusively, I may add, belongs to him alone in order to celebrate his younger sisters and brothers. You see, it was Jesus, the older brother, who didn't hold on to his heavenly robes, but instead willingly stripped himself naked and shamed so that we would be clothed and celebrated. See, what this older brother in this story failed to realize is what Ephesians 2 tells us Jesus accomplishes. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display what? The immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
You see, unlike the father in this story, the father in heaven doesn't have to take from anyone else's inheritance. Why? Because the riches of his mercy are endless. The riches of God's mercies are endless. The riches of his kindness are endless. The riches of his forgiveness are endless. The riches of his love are endless. God doesn't run out of mercy. He doesn't run out of forgiveness. He doesn't run out of grace. The very things that he gives to us, though we don't deserve it, he does not run out of those things. Historically, it seems that we've made this parable mainly about the younger son's irreligion, giving us a reason to point the finger on those that live outside of the church. But the story starts with a really interesting phrase. A man had two sons. This may seem insignificant or even subtle, but the story is not fundamentally about either son, but about the father. A man had two sons, is what the story says. His parenting, his love, his patience, his compassion, his gentleness, his firmness, his pursuit, his understanding, his joy, his willingness. And it causes me to wonder if this small oversight is what has often caused the church to fail at creating spaces of welcome. Just as Jesus did and was accustomed to, according to verse 2, where it says the Pharisees were complaining. What were they complaining about? What, what you got to say? What, what, what's wrong with you? Well, they were complaining because this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then I'll leave you with this last thought and I'll start wrapping up. Not only is the church a safe place for the hurting, not only is the church a risky place for your power, but church ought to be seen as a place to celebrate. Church ought to be seen as a place to celebrate. If you notice, all of Luke 15 is laced with the idea of joy and celebration. Lady lost her coin. She found it. She threw a party. Shepherd lost his sheep. He found it. Happy. Father lost his two sons. Found them. Or at least found the younger son. I think it's interesting that we don't know much of what happened to the older brother. But I'll leave that for another Sunday. Uh, but then he throws a party. The idea of celebration and joy is laced all over this chapter. The father says to the older son, but we had to celebrate. I love that. We had to celebrate, my brother. I know you are angry. I know you're in your feelings right now. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In order for some of us to deeply experience the joy of the Father, we have to sometimes change our measurements of success. Because what we celebrate is descriptive of what we value, right? The first fruit of a true experience with God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's patience is joy. No one needs to compel God to be merciful. No one needs to compel God to be patient and forgiving. But rather, it is the faithful and their confession of sin that demonstrate that God is already faithful and already loving and already forgiving. This passage, when I think about this passage, I think immediately about Psalm 32 where it calls us to be joyful. How can we challenge ourselves to celebrate as this father did? What do we celebrate? 
Does our celebration keep some out? Or does our measurements of celebration invite others in? Those that may not carry your story. Those that may not carry your wrestles. Those that may not carry uh, your joy. How do you invite even in the ways you celebrate? How is your celebration inviting? I'll leave you with this quote from Professor Doris Donnelly. She's a professor uh, at St. John's University. She says this. Maybe we owe it to ourselves to search our culpability as squelchers of joy in others and of being part of systems and institutions that do not tolerate, let alone encourage, joy. Maybe we need to, uh, maybe we need to remedy the balance of somberness and gladness and by gladdening others with support, kind words, encouragement, laughter, hope, time, and the simple gift of self. It wouldn't hurt. In fact, it could actually heal, she says. And it would point to the kingdom that, we first heralded by, that was first heralded by angels who proclaimed good tidings of great joy. Psalm 32 says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit.